In a world where film becomes reality, two hosts are dishing out the truth, blurring the lines between meaningful and mortifying. Prepare for the audio circus that is Drunk Humanity. I'm Nate. And I'm Sam. And we're your hosts for this episode of Drunkumentary. Every episode of Drunkumentary, we'll discuss some of the most impactful, insane, and entertaining documentaries of our time. The documentary this episode is Evil Genius. Give us an evil laugh. <laughs> that was actually way better than I expected, honestly. I was thinking more like uh, Dexter's Laboratory, like kind of laugh, you know? What does that go like? <laughs> Your fucking nose, like, Wait, Does Dexter do that? Who does that? Someone's got an evil laugh in that. I know it for sure. I remember it in the intro. Like, I'm like right now I'm thinking of of Marjorie D. Armstrong's voice, but I, I don't know if I could, I don't know if I could recreate it. We'll have to save that for rendition? later. Try a rendition. We'll have, we'll have to save that for later. I think I have a few, I have a few ideas. Nate! Oh, I'm Marjorie D. Armstrong. <laughs> That's pretty good. <laughs> All right, well, this is the first time we're doing a docu-series for Drunkumentary, so we're gonna break this podcast into two parts. It's going to be one part for every two episodes of Evil Genius. So there are four episodes total of Evil Genius. So this can be broken up into two different parts. Sam, since you're the drunk one this time and I'm the narrator, I'm really curious to see how you can make uh, someone's death funny. Uh, but uh, I'm sure you can. Yeah, you teed me up well for that one. <laughs> I'll say this one was mind-blowing. There's my bit. <laughs> Do you remember this happening in 2003? Uh, no, unfortunately, I don't, I don't remember this at all, but like for some reason when I see the footage of this crime, it definitely like looks familiar, but I don't remember. I think most of us can picture that still image of this guy sitting on the ground. And obviously it didn't go exactly the way uh, the mastermind or evil genius, if you will, intended, but it was gnarly, you know, to say the least. I mean, really, you see the footage, you see the, the body, the producers and the filmmakers of this documentary did a really good job. Do you have a favorite heist of all time? What, Ocean's Eleven? What's the original one? Was Brad Pitt in that? I don't even know. I'm so bad with actors, honestly. S second favorite heist is, uh, we probably have never heard of. D.B. Cooper. Who's, enlighten us. You're not familiar with D.B. Cooper. A plane gets hijacked on the Pacific North Coast. This man, in a ransom note, demands six figures of cash from the FBI loaded onto this plane, where he explains he has an explosive. He receives his money along with parachutes. As an FBI agent, or in the FBI, you would assume they would just pack this suit full of pots and pans, things that you would see in a cartoon, <laughs> full of anvil. No, they gave him actual live parachute. He jumps mid-flight, lands somewhere in Oregon, never to be seen again. There is no evidence of death. They've only found a few bills that have washed ashore, but he has full-on gotten away with this crime, and it's one of the most infamous heists in history. Yeah, I mean, I'm not, I'm not familiar with it, but I guess with a name like DB, you can almost get away with anything. 
Is it just like Dat Boy Cooper? Like, what's what's DB stand for? Da Baby Cooper. Da, da Baby Cooper. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> if you were to plan a perfect bank robbery, what would that look like? Oh, I'm just I'm just sending my two nephews into the bank to rob the bank, and then they get caught, and then I'm just I'm scot free. That's it. That's the, that's the perfect bank robbery. Yeah. Your perfect bank robbery is where you don't even make it out with the money. Well, I'm 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 technically saving money because I have two less nephews. Yeah. You go. What about, what about you? What's the perfect bank robbery? Act as you are the FBI. Go into the bank pretending you're there to save the day, while extracting the money. Oh wow. Who did you find most intriguing? In a cast of characters in this film, who did you find most intriguing? Well, I think the most obvious one, honestly, is Bill Bill Rothstein. I mean, he, I was actually hoping to wear some overalls today just to like emulate him and his energy because he's just he's just such an interesting fucking guy. I mean, his his house was just crazy. He's got like scrap metal everywhere. He's got like a he's got a corner where he just keeps all his like used tissues. I mean, he's just a super interesting guy uh, in the worst way possible. So I would say he's probably my favorite. Do you have a favorite bank robbery movie? Not really. I mean, you know I'm really bad at remembering movies in general. I feel like there was one we watched that was like uh, like two guys that like go around and just rob a bunch of banks in like, like the 70s or something like that. I don't, I don't know. I can't think of any. What do you have in mind? Two that jump out at me that I think are the most creative. Point Break, classic. Sir Keanu Reeves, mm. Swayze. The second, The Town. The town, that's a good one. Oh, I should have thought of that. That's so good. Where they have like the old lady masks on too. That's pretty good. Oh, man. Honorable mention to Dark Knight, the Joker's opening scene. Okay. Pretty creative. Yeah. No, that's fair. No, that's super creative. I love that. And they're all kind of like against each other too. And they're just like killing each other. Uh, spoilers for anyone who hasn't seen it. But yeah, no, that's that's actually a really cool scene. Very well done. Are you listening to another podcast right now? I'm trying to, I'm trying to pronounce this guy's name. That's it. I'm trying to do, to do my man Trey justice. So this episode is we're just going to play you another <laughs> podcast. How do you say it? Borzilli? Borzillary. 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 Where's the airy? Borzillary. Trey Borzillary. Okay, we're going with that. All right, I'm ready. Evil Genius was released in May 2018, created by filmmaker Barbara Schroeder and Trey Borzarelli. It was produced by the Duplass Brothers, which also produced another famous documentary, Wild Wild Country, among other true crime documentaries. Evil Genius can be found on Netflix and is broken up into four parts. Evil Genius starts with the narrator and producer, Trey Borzarelli telling us that there are three things that we need to know about Marjorie Deal Armstrong. The first, that she was never what you would call normal. Second, she grew up to be a beautiful, smart young woman who earned a master's degree in education. The men loved Marjorie and would do just about anything for her. Marjorie gets a lot of attention from men, proving how we always go for the crazy ones. <laughs> and the third thing, well, we don't find that out until later in the documentary. Trey lets us know that he was in touch with Marjorie directly for over a decade and had boxes and boxes of letters from Marge, as Trey calls her. But we'll talk about Marge in more detail later. 
The date is August 28, 2003, and there are multiple calls in the 911 about a robbery at a PNC bank in Erie, Pennsylvania. One of the calls to 911 is from a gentleman that claims that a guy walked out of the bank with a bag of cash, and more interestingly, a bomb or something wrapped around his neck. The documentary cuts to film of an older white man in a white shirt that is pulled up to his chin, hiding something around his neck. He's sitting on the ground in front of a police car with a perimeter of police around him from a safe distance. Audio from a news broadcast plays in the background saying that the man in the footage claimed that a bomb was strapped to his body and he was forced to go and rob the bank. It's at this time in the footage that you hear the man cry out to surrounding police, calmly asking for them to get help and get the key, stating that he might not have a lot of time. The police have no reaction, not a single word. A light beeping starts coming from the man. Beep, beep, beep. And then a hard cut to the docuseries intro. Quintessential Netflix docuseries intro sequence. Overhead shot to the town, couple old school photographs, some eerie music in the background. That's the recipe for a Netflix docuseries intro. We're introduced to Officer Lamont King, a retired corporal with the Pennsylvania State Police Department. He recounts the 28th of August, 2003, from his perspective, remembering when he got the call about a robbery at the PNC Bank. It's at this time that we learned of the man's name who robbed the bank, Brian Wells. A 46-year-old pizza delivery man who had a collar bomb wrapped around his neck when he walked into the PNC Bank. However, that's not the only thing that he walked into the bank with, as footage shows a cane that he carried with him. Police later find out that this is actually a gun disguised as a cane and was fully loaded at the time of the robbery. Brian was described as being very calm in the bank, even waiting in line before eventually going around to everyone to get to the teller. He hands the teller a note during the robbery, proceeds to take a lollipop from the teller's window. Notes aren't unusual when it comes to bank heists. However, the notes that Brian had were nine pages long of misguided, rambly information. As someone with a bomb strapped to my chest, it's at this point I would know I'm absolutely screwed. When I look at the note, it has the same amount of words as the Bible. Some pages were instructions to Brian. One page was supposed to be given to the bank manager. And there was even a page that was supposed to go to police. The note for the teller asked them to hand over $250,000. But Brian only walked out with what was in the bank drawers, somewhere around $8,000. After robbing the bank, the note instructed Brian to go to a McDonald's literally right next door to the PNC Bank. Why would the next note after a bank robbery be just down the street from the bank you just robbed? At the McDonald's, he picked up another note that was attached to a rock on the ground. After grabbing that note, he got back in his car, started heading south on Route 19, also known as Peach Street, which is a major road in Erie. While heading that way, Brian was intercepted by state police minutes after the robbery, who spotted his vehicle and pulled him over. Immediately when pulled over, he complied with police, got out of his car, back towards them until he was handcuffed and placed on the ground. Cops thought the bomb was fake initially. Meanwhile, I still think every Amazon package could be a secret explosive. <laughs> Thinking it's a fake bomb, they start having a conversation with Brian from afar, who was calmly going back and forth with Officer Lamont King. Regardless of their beliefs, they call in the bomb squad, who were around 10 miles away at the time, and even worse, 
Peach Street was closed down to protect the public, so the bomb squad had to fight through the traffic. While on the ground, Brian asked the officers to call his boss to make sure they're aware of the situation. Officers send two guys over to Mamma Mia's Pizza to conduct interviews and see what they can find. Upon investigation, they learned that Brian was sent to deliver two pizzas to a remote, unoccupied radio tower in Erie. While on the ground, Brian lets the officers know, it was black people who jumped me and put the collar around my neck, but never said who it was or couldn't really describe the individuals past that. Officer Lamont goes on tape and says he knew in his heart that a black person didn't do it. Being the first cop to ever go on tape to say that they knew a black person didn't do it. <laughs> it was after this vague description of the suspects that you start to hear a beeping coming from Brian. At this point, Brian gets a little concerned, saying, I'm not lying. I can tell you where to get the keys. I don't have a lot of time. The beeping gets faster when suddenly it explodes, launching Brian onto his back. He was still breathing for a bit as police held guns pointed at him seemingly in case there was something else going to happen. The bomb squad was only four blocks away before the explosion, and right before they arrived, Brian stopped breathing and lost his life. Upon his death, bomb squad searched his body and his vehicle to make sure there were no other explosives. It was in his car that they discovered the other notes for Brian, which depicted a scavenger hunt that Brian was sent on. After getting the note from the McDonald's, Brian was supposed to head south on Peach Street until he got to a traffic light, where there was another note waiting for him in a coffee can on the side of the road. That note was to instruct Brian to continue heading south down to the next drop-off point right by McKean Township exit. Police head to the site, and while looking for evidence, they notice a van approaching. The van slowly heads down the random side road leading to the drop-off point, when suddenly they stop, back up, and drive the opposite way, seemingly have noticed the police were there. The cops find a van driving to the site where the robber was to drop the money. Did they decide to let him go? Yeah, and this was just some random country side street. They should have known immediately. The van was too far away for police to see in it, but Officer Lamont is convinced the driver is the one leaving the notes. They report the van to police, but it was never mentioned again in the investigation. Initially, it was a state police case since it was in their jurisdiction, and the federal investigators would be brought in since it involved a bank. This led to a huge jurisdiction debate where you have the FBI, state police, and the ATF, or the Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco, and Firearms, fighting over who was going to lead the case. In the end, the FBI ended up taking point with the state police and the FTA assisting along the way. This case was immediately elevated to FBI major case number 203, as it was the first time in FBI history that a hostage was sent to a bank with an explosive device assisting him in the robbery, then the device exploding, killing the robber. FBI lead agent Jerry Clark, who's interviewed in the documentary, recalls the start of the investigation where they search Brian Wells' home. During their search, they don't find much other than an address book that had the names and telephone numbers of some local prostitutes in Erie. It wasn't until 3 a.m. the night of August 28th when they transport Brian's body to the coroner's office for examination. They immediately start discussing the collar as that was obviously the main point of evidence. However, it was still attached to Brian's neck after the explosion. No one wanted the collar disrupted, as they put it, and there were suspicions that the collar was maybe booby-trapped. 
So they cut the guy's fucking head off. <laughs> that's, that's right. They figured the easiest way was to decapitate Brian's head in order to remove the collar. There's an audio recreation in the documentary of a statement that Gene Hyde gives one of Brian Wells' three sisters that is truly heartbreaking. She recounts the first time she heard of the suffering and death of her brother Brian. The most powerful moment of this statement is when Gene says, more respect was shown for the destructive device than for Brian's body. Moving away from this harsh moment in the story, the documentary producers introduced us to Linda Payne, Brian's landlord. She claims that everyone described Brian as friendly, happy-go-lucky guy who even danced a little when he got excited. He enjoyed taking his mother to movies, and he also loved scavenger hunts that were posted in the local newspaper. Linda also states that she didn't believe Brian was involved at all, as he was easily influenced, so he must have been picked up and told to make the robbery. Police start retracing the steps of Brian on August 28th. There was a call on to Mamma Mia's Pizza at 1.30 for the pizzas. Police discover that the call came in from a nearby Shell gas station asking for the pizzas to be delivered to a radio tower. Police go to the site where the radio tower is and find tire marks belonging to Brian's car, as well as footprints from the shoes he was wearing that day, confirming that Brian did in fact go to the radio tower. They start searching for DNA evidence, fingerprints, anything that they could possibly find, but there was absolutely nothing there. Three days after Brian's death, on Sunday, August 31st, there's a strange twist to the story. Robert Panetti, a coworker of Brian's, was found dead from an overdose. Panetti being found dead days later quickly becomes the best two-for-one value offered at the restaurant. <laughs> That's good. <laughs> I just wasn't expecting that. <laughs> Robert and Brian weren't just coworkers, but truly friends who frequently hung out and enjoyed gambling together. Robert was supposed to give an interview to the FBI that next morning on what he knew about the Brian Wells situation. They believed that the overdose was either accidental or a suicide. At this point, I was waiting for them to say they cut his head off just to keep continuity. <laughs> Robert was known to have a little bit of a drug habit, but that was not uncommon for the Erie area. There were thoughts that maybe after the death of Brian Wells, Robert may have OD trying to get too high and forget the passing of his friend. Others think that he may have been involved in the robbery somehow. Virginia Panetti, Robert's mom, gets absolutely roasted by reporters after his death. Quote, her health clearly failing, unquote. <laughs> she is noted to be walking around like the paper skin fish from Spongebob. <laughs> Since this was a unique investigation that made global news, the police had multiple teams in operation on this. They had one team strictly focused on prostitutes, since Brian had a list of prostitutes' names in his notebook. They started following the lead of one particular prostitute and found out that a boyfriend of hers had a military background with explosives and was also African-American. Naturally, the police thought they may be onto something, but in the end, the boyfriend was found to have nothing to do with the incident. Police figured, okay, let's release a picture of the device to see if anyone in the public can recognize the instrument, the metal, the clasp system that connected around the neck, or really just anything. They also released five clues that may describe the mastermind behind this crime. They are a handyman, 
collects weapons of war. They're patient, deceptive, and secretive. They list characteristics such as patient and secretive, yet also someone who shows off their cane guns. <laughs> I would hope you turn me into the FBI if I ever showed you a cane gun. <laughs> I'd, I'd actually be pretty impressed, honestly. The documentary then introduces us to Jason Wick, an ATF special agent, part of the evidence collection team, who is an absolute badass. He's worked on the evidence teams for the 1993 World Trade Center bombing, as well as the 9-11 Shanksville, Pennsylvania investigative team. For the Brian Wells case, they had captured over 90% of the components of the device and bomb and had almost completely put it back together. They found the mastermind didn't leave a trace of where the materials were purchased or what tools were used and immediately knew this would be a long investigation. The bomb itself was pretty simple, just being two pipe bombs, two timers, but they also assumed that it would take over a month for someone to put this together. There were so many red herrings in this or purposeful decoys to prevent the bomb squad from tampering with it. There were random wires everywhere that didn't do anything warning labels, and even a plastic phone to mimic a call-activated bomb. Investigators then decided to try and retrace the scavenger hunt route that Brian was supposed to go on the day he died. They left from the same spot at the same time and day of the week with the very same weather conditions and confirmed that there was no way possible Brian could have finished everything before the bomb went off. They determined that the scavenger hunt itself was a red herring and that Brian was unfortunately supposed to die that day. This was without a doubt a murder, whether Brian was involved in the robbery or not. There was no smoking gun up to this point, and the case had almost no forensic evidence, so this would only be solved by someone spilling the beans. Episode one of Evil Genius ends with a call back to Marjorie Deal Armstrong. Remember, she's smart, but now we find out that she was also mentally ill. Marjorie Deal Armstrong, or MDA, <laughs> earned a degree in education, which totally foreshadows her role in the plot later on in the doc. It was rumored that, as a child, it took a life-size dollhouse for kids to even play with her. <laughs> However, it would probably take a convertible and a kilo of cocaine for me to make any friends now. She had multiple diagnoses from mental health experts, ranging from narcissism on the low end all the way to diagnosed bipolar. She couldn't keep a job and struggle with daily life. And the third thing we, that we need to know about Marjorie Deal Armstrong is that most of the men in her life don't seem to last long. She had a number of dead boyfriends and husbands, one hitting his head on a coffee table and dying, another hanging himself after Marge moved out. At least five men in her life died prematurely, whether by accident or seemingly acts of violence. Cut to a 9-11 call of a man named Bill Rothstein calling in to report a dead body at 8645 Pete Street in a garage freezer. Rothstein snitching on himself in the luckiest, dumbest break in recorded FBI history. MDA asked for a piece of her dead husband's leg bone. How could I forget that? Yes. <laughs> the call to 911 for Bill Rothstein says, and I quote, there's a woman at the residence that you might want to pick up and question. When asked how he knows that, he says, trust me, I know. 
I'll tell you guys my story later on. Episode 2 opens up with an investigator on the case calling Mr. Rothstein back, asking about the body in the freezer. We then find out that 8645 P Street is actually Mr. Rothstein's house, and the body in the freezer is a boyfriend, or shall I say ex-boyfriend, of Marge. Naturally, Mr. Rothstein is terribly afraid of Marjorie, stating that she is extremely intelligent and she wanted Rothstein to get rid of the body. It's noted that the coroner at this point was up to his neck in dead bodies. <laughs> everyone on the case immediately suspected this everyone on the case immediately suspected that this was linked to the Brian Wells investigation. As Mr. Rothstein's house is at the end of the road that leads to the radio tower that Brian delivered the pizzas to. Mr. Rothstein came into the police office first and foremost for his own safety from Arge, but also to be questioned about everything. Rothstein had time to come up with an excuse before calling the cops. He ultimately comes up with guilt as the main reason for storing a body next to his flavor aid pops. <laughs> Officer Lamont King, who we're introduced to on episode one, was sent over to 8645 Peach Street to investigate the situation. He immediately finds the body in the freezer, stating that it was wrapped like a side of beef. Days later, the forensics team discovered that the cause of death was from a shotgun wound. Officer King then goes and investigates inside the residence, finding Marjorie Doe Armstrong, or MDA, on the bed upstairs ranting about the police being there. The coroner says that the man found in the freezer had the consistency of a frozen turkey, which is disturbingly descriptive yet helpful. Actually extremely helpful in the worst way possible, yeah. They arrest Marjorie and drive her to the station for questioning. The officer that drove her to the station said she probably hadn't bathed in over a week, making the 15-minute drive back seem like years. Next, video is shown of investigators questioning Mr. Rothstein on his involvement, and he reveals that the body belongs to Jim Roden, who is Marge's boyfriend for over 10 years, and that Marge requested his assistance to remove the body. His answers to questions asked of him are pretty vague and uncertain. He didn't remember what his response was to helping her, doesn't know if he asked how she killed Jim Roden, or really any exact details about the instance. He admits that he helped her get the body out of the house and figured he'd deal with it later. So he took it to his garage, the best place possible to store a body. After all of that is when he decided that he couldn't go through with it all and call the police. On the other side of the story, Marjorie starts right off by stating that Bill Rothstein is behind it all, is a complete liar, and is going to be sued, even if it has to be from her jail cell. MDA calls Rothstein a pervert, saying that he wanted oral and anal sex from her. And if that's the case, she'd be calling me R. Kelly. <laughs> she calls reporters claiming that she is being witched by Rothstein and has nothing to do with it. Investigators at the time had a strong inclination that the three deaths of Wells, Panetti, and Roden were linked in some way. However, they actually had to pit those links together through evidence. Forensics teams on the Roden case determined that he was killed roughly three weeks before the bank heist, and his body was in the freezer when police were investigating the radio tower. These two places aren't even a quarter of a mile away from each other. The producers of the documentary then jump into one of their signature, here's what you need to know about 
This time about Bill Rothstein. You need to know that like Marjorie, Bill's not what you would call normal. His family owned the famous Rolla Cola bottling plant in town. And he was extremely intelligent, but one of his friends in the documentary said he was never a finisher. This alluded to him dropping out of college and never getting his desired pilot's license. Also, Rothstein and Marjorie were friends for over 30 years. The same friend of Rothstein says that he personally couldn't stand Marjorie, but she had some kind of hold on Rothstein that was unexplainable. Almost as if she had gotten into his psyche, which explains why he might have been willing to hide a dead body for her. Marjorie's best friend says that Rothstein and Marge were always together, mainly because they were the only ones who could really relate to each other on an intellectual level. They had a stormy relationship, as one person says, as they were often dating on and off. They were even engaged at one point. Marjorie was the one who broke off the engagement, and Rothstein's life was never the same. After the engagement was broken off, Rothstein was never engaged again or seriously dated another woman. Back on the investigative end, the FBI found evidence that the shooting and killing of Jim Roden occurred at Marjorie's house, and this gave them the perfect reason to search her residence. One major hindrance in the search was that Marge was a serious hoarder. One agent says there was clutter, feces, and more clutter all over her home. Classic clutter sandwich. (laughs) (laughs) The Humane Society even had to come out to take away two deceased cats and leave water and food for the cats still inside. Back at the precinct, Ken Barnes, Marjorie's fishing buddy and friend for over nine years, is interviewed by investigators. Ken admitted that Jim Roden and Marjorie fought like cats and dogs all the time, and Marjorie threatened to kill him multiple times to Roden's face. She essentially had Roden by the throat, and if he didn't do what Marge wanted, he was no good. Ken Barnes's wife is also interviewed, and she tells investigators about Marjorie's troubles with the law in 1984 when she had shot and killed her then-boyfriend. Her boyfriend was sleeping on the couch when she shot him six times and had managed to get away unscathed, telling police that he was abusing her and it was an act of self-defense. She bragged about this constantly to Ken and his wife. The documentary zooms back to Bill Rothstein, who remains free on bail this entire investigation because of his cooperation with police. He agrees to give police a tour of the crime scene at Marjorie Deal's home, where he breaks down where the body was, how they removed it, and all of the details of the crime. He then takes investigators to his home, 8645 Peach Street, where he had lived for 55 years, to break down how he had stored Jim's body. And during this time, he dropped some very interesting information. He admitted that he had tried to commit suicide after agreeing to store Jim's body by taking razor blades to his wrist. But more importantly, that he had sent a suicide note to police. The very first bullet point of the suicide note, this has nothing to do with the Wells case. Investigators rightfully so ask him what he means about this, and he casually brushes it off, stating that he didn't want the police or FBI wasting their time trying to look for a connection between the two cases. Cut to the director's classic, Another thing you should know about Bill Rothstein, that he was in a family feud right before the investigation started, and not the fun kind with Steve Harvey. (laughs) Bill had been living rent-free in his parents' home since they passed away, and his siblings wanted to sell the house. Bill was the executor of the estate and didn't want to move out, so he simply lied 
and stated that he would sell the house for $90,000 when really he listed it for $250,000 so that it wouldn't sell. If $250,000 sounds familiar to you, that's because it's the same amount that Brian Wells asked for at the PNC Bank during the robbery. Officers on the case bring in Rothstein for a lie detector test to question him about the Brian Wells case, any involvement, the note, etc. And he passes without a problem. Police then find out about a friend who was staying with Rothstein up until the whole town lost its mind over the Brian Wells case. He was on the run from police in another state for raping a disabled teenage girl. This piece of shit friend passed a lie detector test too. So him and Rothstein were officially cleared by FBI of being involved in the Brian Wells incident. At this point, four months after the bank heist, Rothstein was completely unwavered regarding the Brian Wells case and focused his attention on getting the best possible outcome for the death of Jim Roden. In January 2004, five months after Roden's death, the trial begins against Marjorie and Rothstein for his murder. Marge was facing murder charges and never spoke at the trial, whereas Rothstein got cut a deal for his cooperation. He was given misdemeanor charges for tampering with a dead body and was out on bail until sentencing in the fall of 2004. That summer after the trial, Bill Rothstein passed away from terminal cancer. Four days before his death, he was interviewed by an agent jury at the FBI on the Brian Wells case, who had pleaded with Rothstein to tell him honestly if he was involved in any way, do not bring this with you when you leave this earth. A bedridden Rothstein just writes a big N-O in the air and nothing more. Rothstein with the mic drop on the way out. <laughs> Months after Bill's death, the truth comes out about the Jim Roden case. Marjorie had spilled the beans and bragged to his cellmates in jail that she killed him because they were fighting about another woman. Marge requested a plea deal for the Jim Roden case claiming that she wasn't in her right mind when she murdered him. She even shaved her own eyebrows off in jail every week to make herself appear more crazy and help her insanity defense. Prosecutors took her plea deal and she got third-degree murder charges for killing James Roden with a minimum sentence of seven years. She got accepted into a psych ward as part of her plea deal instead of jail, which was obviously the better of the two choices. She got off pretty well, unfortunately. With Rothstein dead and Marjorie seemingly the only person that may know something about the Brian Wells bank heist, the producer of the documentary reaches out to Marge with a letter asking if she knows anything about the case. Marjorie says she's very familiar with the case and has some secret information that the public doesn't know, but she wants legal help or at least a cash consideration in return. And that's how, what the producer calls, the most unusual and bizarre relationship begins between the two of them. Episode two of Evil Genius ends with us seeing real-time video footage of Marjorie Dale Armstrong sitting down to talk to Trey, the producer, from her psych ward. And that's the first half of Evil Genius. Tune into the next episode to find out how the series finishes, some of the twists behind the story, and some of the funny commentary that we noticed along the way. Thanks for tuning in to this episode of Drunkumentary. Make sure to send any questions or ideas to us at drunkumentarypodcast at gmail.com. Make sure to follow us on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter at drunkumentarypodcast. That's it.
Re Mi Fa So. <laughs>